some point in our lives we had a dream. Maybe you still have that dream. Can I share with you my dream that I had when I was a kid? When I was in seventh grade, middle school, but we didn't have middle school back then. It was junior high. Junior high was seventh and eighth grade. I was on the high school swim team. As a seventh grader, I swam against seniors in high school. And the interesting thing was, of course, as a seventh grader, you're just still developing, and, you know, seniors in high school were a lot further developed than me, but I was swimming a lot. I was swimming four or five miles a night, and I got pretty good at swimming. I got to the point where I didn't realize this, but my math teacher was my swimming coach. And he went and talked to my gym teacher and said, um, Mr. Nelson's a pretty good swimmer. And my gym teacher said, oh, really? So the next time we had gym class and we had swimming, my gym teacher said that Mr. Marsh, who was my math teacher, the coach, said, Mr. Marsh says Mr. Nelson's pretty good at swimming. We're going to see how good he is today. So he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a race. Mr. Nelson is going to swim four laps. And then he picked the four most athletic kids in our class and said, they're each going to swim one lap. And the loser gets the paddle. Now, that wasn't abuse back then when I was a kid, okay? That's just the, what they did for motivation. Okay, it was abuse, but we didn't look at it that way. And you didn't go home and tell your mom and dad because you probably got the paddle again. So you just let it go. So here I am thinking, man, these are the athletes in my class. I'm going to have to swim my heart out here. But I didn't realize that they hadn't been swimming. This is in the middle of the winter. I've been swimming four miles a night. So math teacher lines us up. I'm on one end of the pool alongside another guy. And there's another guy down there and another guy here and another guy there. And he says, go, and I just jump in the pool, start swimming as fast as I can, and, and I swim a lap, and the guy next to me swims a lap, and then I turn around, and the next guy jumps in, and at the end of the race, I look up, and I beat him by half a lap. I was pretty excited, but then it turned into not so great excitement, because my four buddies from school who were much more athletic than me ended up getting the paddle that day because <laughs> I beat them. You have a dream? When I got into eighth grade, I was two points away from lettering, getting a high school letter in eighth grade for swimming. And I was really excited. I'd found my niche in life. I'd found something that I was really good at. And then something happened in our world budget cuts. Back when I was going to school, the school paid for everything. Every sport, every activity. You never paid activity fees like now they pay for every kid that plays football or basketball or volleyball or softball or baseball. You always pay fees. We didn't pay them back then. The school paid for them. And the school was running out of money, so they cut the swim team. I had seen myself as a four-year letterman in high school, the captain of the team as a senior in high school. I even had aspirations of trying out for the Olympics. 
Back then, there was this guy who was really popular in the swimming world. Most of you have heard of Michael Phelps. How many of you have heard of Mark Spitz? Yeah, you're showing your age. <laughs> Mark Spitz was the guy when I was in school, and everybody wanted to be like Mark Spitz, and I, I thought I could do it. I had a dream. We all have dreams, right? We're going to read a little bit about that today and talk about the dreams that we have. We're going to spend most of our time today in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it up, take a look at it. Uh, if you don't, you can read along with me. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. But on the third day he will rise from the dead. Interesting, this is right before the disciples are going to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about Palm Sunday. We're going to get excited about Easter. We're going to learn some things about Palm Sunday. But this is leading up to that time in history. And Jesus is telling his disciples, here's what's going to happen. Interesting, the next point that comes across. The next verse. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. You see, these guys ran with it, with their mom. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Now the other disciples are chiming in. Then the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, and they were ticked off. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many." What an interesting passage of Scripture. The title of my message today, Who Wants to Be Great? We all do. We all want to be great. Everyone has a dream for their life, something that they feel would make your life better, that would make it matter, that would make your life have significance, that would make a difference in our world. Here we see Jesus telling his followers in those first verses... Here's what's going to happen. 
we're going to go into Jerusalem and they're going to flog me, they're going to whip me, and they're going to kill me. Not the real example that these guys were thinking that they were going to follow. And I'm sure some of these guys said, wait a second, don't you have a dream? Don't you have a desire to do something great with your life? I thought you said you were going to establish your kingdom and you were going to save the world. And now you're telling me you're going to die? They don't get it. They don't understand what leadership looks like in God's kingdom. How can you do that? How can you be a leader? How can you save the world if you die? They were looking at his leadership through the eyes of the world. To be great, you have to lead and show the world your dreams and plans and, and how capable you really are. That's what leadership is in our world, right? Then the mother of James and John steps up and she says, I have a dream. I have a dream that my two kids are going to sit on the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. Nothing wrong with that dream, is it? It's a little selfish, yeah. But they had aspirations of being great. Who wants to be great? James and John want to be great. Then the rest of the disciples heard what was going on, and they wanted a piece of the action. They said, hey, we got dreams too. We want to be great. We want to be known. We want to have significance and impact with our lives. We don't want to follow after somebody who's going to die and pass on to oblivion. What they didn't understand was the way Jesus looks at significance. They didn't understand that Jesus views importance and significance differently than we do. They didn't understand leadership in the eyes of Jesus. They were comparing it to the world and how the ruler sits on a throne and those in importance sit on his right and on his left. In the world, from before that time until now, leadership is viewed in our world, as accomplishment, wealth, and power. You're successful, you're a leader, if you have those things in your life. Or you're attaining or striving to become those things. Accomplishment, wealth, and power. If you desire to be a great leader, certain things must be evident in your life. Now, I have these in my notes, in parentheses. Just bear with me here for a second. If you desire to be a great leader, certain things must be evident in your life. You must have position in a company, or society says you're a great leader, or you gotta have a charismatic personality, so much so that everybody wants to be a part of what you're doing, and they're so excited that you're the leader, and it gives you a position of leadership. Or you gotta be famous, like an athlete, or a media personality, or you got to be a famous actor or an actress. And somehow that makes you a leader in our world. Leaders are people who are up front, who take charge, who speak their mind, who get things done. 
If someone ever takes that part of my message out of context, I could be labeled as a heretic. You know how in politics now where they're pulling different pastors' sermons out and they, they pull out a certain part and they say, oh, this is what this guy believes? That's not what I believe, okay? That's what the world says leadership is. Somehow you have to be this charismatic person. you got to be a take charge. you got to be an upfront person. That's what the disciples saw, right? And what does Jesus say? I'm going to die. That's not leadership. What about your dreams? What about your plans? What about your desire to change the world, to save the world? The world looks at leadership differently than the church does. The world looks at leadership through the lens of ambition. You got to be ambitious. You got to get up in the morning and you got to go after it hard all day long and fall in bed exhausted. Ambition is not bad. Ambition is good. Everyone needs ambition. If you don't have ambition, you will sit on the couch all day and you will get nothing done and your life will amount to nothing. We live in an ambitious world. We want to know who is the best, who's the fastest, who's the smartest, the strongest, the loudest, the longest, the richest. We just got done watching the Winter Olympics, right? There we saw the best, the best of the best. Somebody said, well, they should put like a regular person upside alongside of these people when they're doing these things. Then you'd see how good they really are. Like I'm amazed at the guys who do the cross-country skiing and the shooting. You seen this? They, they go like crazy for five, 10 miles, and then you gotta stop and you gotta hit a target that's 100 yards away that's about that big around, like six times in a row. And you're breathing like crazy, and you have to control your breathing. Now, if they would have put me alongside those guys, yeah, then you would see how good they really are. But we all want that, right? Why do people who don't watch a single football game all year watch the Super Bowl? Because we want to know who wins. Who's the best? Why do we watch TV shows that portray people who are trying to be the best at singing or a talent that they have? And why are they so popular on our TV today? Because we want to know who the best is. We consider that and view that leadership and leaders in their industry. Let's face it, life is about winning and losing. That's why we keep score. That's why we love sports and games. But that is not the way to leadership in the kingdom of God. And you're going to have to stick with me a little bit today, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Ambition is not wrong, but should be for the right reason. Listen to this next statement. Either write it down or etch it in your memory. Worldly ambition strives to exalt self and exercise authority over others. Christian ambition seeks to exalt God and humbly serve others. Let me say that again. Worldly ambition strives to exalt self and exercise authority over others. Christian ambition seeks to exalt God and humbly serve others. I know it's countercultural. I know it 
Driven people will have a hard time seeing this. They'll look at it as meek or timid or mild. But look at what Jesus does with his life when he humbly serves others. Did he not change the world? Did he ever sit on a throne? True leadership is found in serving others. What this looks like will vary according to you. It doesn't mean that the CEO of the company must take a turn sweeping floors or cleaning toilets or that any other worker can cite a poor habit of his because he's helping somebody else. True servant leadership is found in an audience of one. You don't do it for the love, the admiration, the respect of anyone but God. So here's the difficult question to ask yourself today. What does biblical leadership look like for you? God creates us all differently, right? I'm at home earlier this week and I'm I'm trying to formulate this in my mind and I'm trying to speak it out. I want, I want you guys to get this. So I had a conversation with my wife and I said, we talked about what servant leadership looks like. I know what servant leadership looks like in her life. My wife is one who serves in the cafe and serves coffee. And matter of fact, she's doing that this week. Servant leadership to her is coming early. And cutting those donuts and having that coffee ready when you show up and you're like a little bit hungry and you want some coffee and it's there and it's ready. But she also stays afterwards and cleans up that kitchen and washes the dishes and throws the garbage away and does those kinds of things that other people don't see. That's her servant leadership. Now it's different for me. I don't see those things. I'm not above that. It's not like I can't make coffee or wash dishes or do those kinds of things, but I don't see it. For instance, um, some of the ladies do decorations around here, and they look really nice when I see them. But here's a perfect example. I'm standing in the lobby last December, and I'm looking out the doors, looking out into our front of our church, and I say to one of the staff people, I go, what are those balloons doing in the tree out front? And they go, what? I said, there's somebody tied balloons to the tree out front. They're like, those are Christmas ornaments. They've been there for weeks. <laughs> I'm like, huh? I don't see it. It doesn't make me bad. It's just who I am. So my wife, who sees the help side wants me to experience or practice servant leadership by doing things that she sees of value and importance that God has gifted her in. I don't see it. Does that make me less of a servant leader? Does that make her more of a servant leader? I said to her, I said, what if I were to tell you, because you're a pastor's wife, you really should serve the ladies by doing a Bible study and being up front here and sharing from the word. Ooh, that's not her. 
Do you see how it looks different? Servant leadership is based on the skills and the talents and abilities that God's given you and how you use them. You can't put them on somebody else. The minute that I say to you, well, you got to be a servant leader in this way because that's the way I see servant leadership, it's no longer about you, it's about me. So it looks different for people based on what God has given you a talent to use. So if you're a leader and you're a leader in a company, maybe you're a CEO, maybe you own a company here, maybe you're a manager, servant leadership to you is going to look different than to somebody else. But we still got to serve. And Jesus was the ultimate example for us there. Is one style of leadership better than the other? Some would say yes. Leading people have way more value and should be something everyone strives for, right? You should all strive to be a leader and, you know, somebody of importance, somebody up front. No, that's not it at all. I say the person that sits in that back booth right there that runs <laughs> this here. I don't know what just happened there. The person who runs the words for the songs that we sing is just as important as the person that's up here playing the guitar or singing the song. Because if they don't run the words, are they leading us? No. That's their way of serving all of you. And it's important that they do that and they do it well. Just as important that people who are up here play the right notes, sing the right notes, do the right thing at the right time. Some people will never be up here because they can't sing. But they can be back there and they can be serving us. That's what I'm talking about. Using your gift, your talent, your ability that God has given you in the way that serves others. Don't think you have to be like somebody else. God has created you the way you are and who you are. People in the cafe are leading our church by providing an atmosphere that speaks volumes. That speaks of an atmosphere of welcome and invitation to our culture. The person who's up front here has to know where their audience is at, spiritually, where they need help, where they need direction, where they need guidance. So the question for you to answer today is what does biblical servant leadership look like for you? And how is it expressed? Here's how it's expressed. One word. If you remember this word today, this will get you through the next week. Biblical servant leadership is found in humility. Once you start thinking your role is bigger than somebody else's role, my authority is more important than your authority, my job is bigger than your job, humility goes out the door, and you're not a servant leader. Philippians 2, 
3 and 4 talk about that. Let's see if we can get to it here. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I had to learn that verse when I played basketball in college. Before you could play any game, you had to be able to recite those two verses to the coach. Because that's what team sport is about. So many times when I watch people play basketball, it's all about them, how good they are at dribbling, going around a certain person, how long, many shots I can make, how many points I can make, how many steals I can have. Basketball's got to be about that. Our Christian walk has to be about that. Humility. Don't think of yourself as better than others. Don't only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The ultimate act of, of obedience was what Jesus did. You see, Jesus told those guys at that point, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to be flogged and whipped and beaten, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die. And then he said to them, anyone who wants to be great must be a servant. And they didn't understand that. So much so that a few days later, they're in the upper room eating the Last Supper, and they're still having the same argument. They're still going, yeah, but I, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be the most important. I mean, they're still arguing days later on this. And what does Jesus do? Do you remember? He gets out a wash basin, and he takes a towel, and he does the lowest form of service that anyone, the bottom slave washes the feet of the people who come into your house. You, if you invited people to your house, the, the people who are hospitable would never wash the feet of somebody coming in. The lowest slave washed your feet. Jesus, rather than give them another sermon, <laughs> washed the feet of the disciples and said, he get it? He didn't have to do that. He's the leader. He could have said, hey, Peter, I need you to do something for me. And Peter would have done it, absolutely. But Jesus did it by example. Humility is the name of the game for servant leadership. Have any of you guys ever had your feet washed by someone? few of you have. I'll never forget, I used to go, I still go to Mexico once a year, but I used to do it a lot. And I used to have about a hundred people at a time with me when I would go to Mexico. We'd do short-term mission trips together, and I would bring numerous youth groups. And I'll never forget one time I had a hundred people down in Mexico with me, and one of the guys from the church, he comes to me and he says, hey, um, I, got a, I got a favor to ask of you like, okay. He says, I want you to come over to my work, and I, I want you to pray over my business. We're not doing so well. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, I want to say I don't have the time because I got a lot of stuff going on, but I'm like, no, I, I just need to stop and honor this guy's request and go to his work and pray with him. 
So we walked around his machinery, and we prayed for machinery, and we prayed for his family, and I prayed for his business, and I prayed for him. And we created this friendship and this relationship, and he became a really good friend. And Later on, when uh, we were looking for a place to bring our groups to eat dinner at somebody's house, I said, I know my brother Jorge would love to have my group at his house. And the pastor looks at me, he goes, Really? Because you got like 60 people here this week. I said, yeah, Jorge will feed us. And we went to Jorge's house. And there were 60 of us and 40 people from the church. And he fed 100 people that night. Barbecue. It's awesome. And the next year we went back to his house and he fed us again. And we created this memory of going to Jorge's house, sharing a meal together. We developed a relationship. One year he came to me and he said, hey, when you come this year, when you leave, I want you to stay back. And he said, keep a couple of your leaders and your daughter. And I'm like, okay. So we, we stayed and his whole family was around him and he had his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids and a couple of leaders from my group and my daughter, Olivia, and he brought us into his house and he sat me down and he said, I wanted to do something to show you how much I respect you. And he doesn't speak a word of English and I don't speak much Spanish. And so this is all through translator. He gets down on his knees and he washes my feet. And he did it and he's explaining to his family that he is trying to be a humble servant of God. It was very, very powerful for me. The next day I flew home. Two weeks later I get a call from the church that said Jorge had passed away. He was failing in his health and he probably knew it more than anybody else. But what a way to leave a legacy for your family. One of the last things his whole family together saw was him washing the feet of somebody else, humbling himself, the leader of a company, his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, all work for him. He is a highly successful man, yet he stopped and washed my feet. What are we going to do with that kind of example of humble, Servant leadership. The world gets glory from authority. The church gets glory from service and submission. The world gets glory from authority. The church gets its glory from service and submission. What if today, what would our world look like if we all stopped to serve someone else? out of your everyday life, if you stopped and served someone else. What does service look like in your world today? How do you apply that to your life? I want to leave you with one last thing, because this is really, really important. Don't apply this message to somebody else. Don't go home and tell your kids or your spouse, here's how you should be a servant leader. Apply it to your own life. God, how are you asking me to serve others? And what does that look like in my world? 
and keep me humble enough to do that. If you do it out of humility, you will be doing the right thing. Don't do it to please anybody else other than God. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the example of what Jesus, who really is a leader and really does know what it means to lead the world and how he showed his example. Lord, help me, help each one of us to know what servant leadership looks like for us today. Help us to model that in our world and to our families. And may you keep us humble, Lord, as we look to serve and follow you. May our church be the place where servant leadership is not only seen, but is expressed and is seen as an example. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the people that are here. Lord, bless us as we go about this day and our week. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. You are dismissed.